Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, and we are talking treaties today. Uh, sort of interesting for me, uh, we're actually recording this the day before we released it, or we're releasing it, and there was a story this morning on the CBC, at least locally, I don't know if it got national coverage, of the prime minister making a commitment to apologize to the Métis community uh, out there in, in Winnipeg for their treatment of veterans after the Second World War. And you know, it, it seems over the past few years that more and more these issues are getting attention at the federal level. And you know, we just go back and the history of indigenous peoples in this country and the way they've been uh, treated by federal governments is, uh, of course, not the best. And another really valuable work uh, that has just come out from our friends at the University of Regina Press really gets into how deep this really is and, and how First Nations people were, have been really taken advantage of by the federal government. And we are very happy to be talking with Sheldon Krasowski here from Athabasca University about his new book, No Surrender, The Land Remains Indigenous. And he joins us from Calgary. How are you doing today, Sheldon? Uh, good, good. Uh, thanks for having me. So my very long-winded intro there um, gets, us in, gets us into treaties. And, of course, out there in the West, you're in the numbered treaty area. So for, for you, what, what's the approach to this book, and, and how do you get into looking at the treaties? Yeah, I was a bit of a unique approach. So I'm, I'm in Calgary, which is where I work, but I was born in Saskatoon. So Saskatoon is part of Treaty 6 territory. And Calgary, of course, is part of Treaty 7 territory. So we have these numbered treaties that were negotiated basically between 1870 and Treaty 7 was 1877. And they are more important in Western Canada, though, of course, there are treaties in Eastern Canada as well. But the numbered treaties, because they're a bit later, they're post-Confederation, and um, they kind of define, I think they define the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. And they're important to me, they're important to many people, but many people don't understand about the treaties because they were over negotiated over 100 years ago. So it's kind of like that was the idea to get back into into the number of treaties and to focus on the specific treaty time and to focus on the negotiations themselves. So just, you know, you mentioned that there's, of course, treaties all over the country. Why were these ones numbered? This is actually something I've never uh, been able to, I've never actually asked anybody, what, like, why are these ones specifically numbered? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, all all the treaties are numbered. So if you grab, there's um, Indian treaties and surrenders. Um, they're all compiled. You can get them published. Um, usually, a lot of coals or chapters will have them. But um, after Confederation in 1867, they restarted the numbering process. So rather than start at I don't know what it would have been 537 or something, they decided to start at one because these the previous ones were negotiated. Um, they were more colonial, like with, with the London office or with Britain, whereas these are now between Canada and the Queen and First Nations. So that's why they started at number one. And the first one that they negotiated was uh, at Fort Garry, where Winnipeg is today, and that's treaty number one. And certainly then, was there an expectation, or, or is there an expectation as people look back on them that they are different because they are post-Confederation, this idea that maybe Canada, once it becomes this political institution in 1867, that there, the treaties are going to change and, and have a fundamental difference from the colonial era? 
Well, they certainly are more complicated. If you look at the earlier ones, they're often just single-pagers. Uh, the early Ontario um, land surrenders or the Upper Canada treaties are a good example. They're they're pretty straightforward. Um, they deal with land. They talk about hunting, continued hunting and fishing rights, whereas the number of treaties after 1871 um, talk about education clause. And they talk about agricultural assistance and freedom uh, to continue hunting, uh, trapping and fishing. So um, there's lots of... Um, I guess there's lots of extra details, but interestingly, it's not because Canada is uh, has has grown up as a political entity, but it's, but basically, um, other historians have kind of told the story already. But the number of treaties are more uh, complicated because of demands made by the indigenous communities out west. So it was in, indigenous communities that demanded protecting from hunting and fishing, agricultural implements, um, uh, education clause kind of comes from both missionaries and indigenous peoples, but um, these additional clauses weren't because of the benevolence of the Canadian government, they were because of demands made by the chiefs. And is that a product of them seeing what's going on and, and recognizing what's been happening in now Eastern Canada and, and the, the trees yeah. and the violations there? Yeah, absolutely. So there's the, the Moccasin Telegraph, there's how um, people communicated back then, and they knew that treaties weren't always um, adhered to, and they wanted to be very careful when they were negotiating. So part of the, the kind of misconception about treaties is that the Euro-Canadian political entity took advantage of Indigenous chiefs who supposedly weren't astute negotiators, and they were able to secure um, access to the lands that way. But in actual fact, the the, the chiefs, the leadership, and the communities were... were um, were very um, were very learned. They were they knew about uh, Canada. They knew about um, relationship with the Hudson's Bay Company, who then they had been trading with, and so they had a very good idea of what they were getting into when they were negotiating treaties. And so, um, yeah, that was a, a big part of why they wanted these extra protections. And then what happened in the negotiations is very complicated, but um, basically you have this um, treaty process through treaties one through seven and you have the treaties that exist today. So with that sophistication that the the nations are coming into this with and understanding the process and understanding what has happened around them, you know, one of the, I, correct me if I'm wrong, one of the, the main claims here in this book is that there was no real cultural misunderstanding between government negotiators and the nations, but instead it was deliberate misrepresentation by government negotiators? Yeah, that's correct. The cultural misunderstandings thesis, which I talk about a little bit in the book, kind of came from from historians from about the 1930s to the 70s and the 80s, and um, there were a whole bunch of different Canadian historians, and it was kind of an, an easy story to tell, because you've got Indigenous communities that have a, a mainly oral tradition, different languages, and then you have the Euro-Canadians coming in. And so it was kind of easy to say, well, there were uh, miscommunications, uh, people had different expectations, the different sides had different expectations, and the treaties were, um, I guess to use a quote, not an unqualified success. But when I was looking at the records, and I was looking especially the Indigenous oral histories that had been published, that explanation just seemed too convenient. And what I, when I really, uh, so I was critical of that when I started looking at the records, and then when I really looked deeply, did a close reading of the archival documents, it wasn't the fact that there was uh, mutual misunderstandings. It was that Canada intentionally and the treaty commissioners intentionally misled 
the Indigenous leadership over the surrender clause. And I wasn't the first one to propose this. Other historians had proposed. They noticed the absence of a discussion of the surrender clause, especially at Treaty 6. And so all I did is I took that idea in Treaty 6 and I kind of expanded it to Treaties 1 through 7. And I realized, oh, it's not just Treaty 6. It actually started at Treaty 1. During the Treaty 1 negotiations, Canada, and even Treaty Commissioner Alexander Morris says this in the book that he published on the treaties. He says that it was so complicated to discuss lands, they resolved to discuss the benefits of the negotiations and then not discuss land until after the treaty was agreed upon. Which really doesn't make any sense, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's all about the land. It is all about the land, uh, but for First Nations, and you really see this uh, when you read um, the book um, No Surrender, you really see this in the Treaty 4 chapter, that Treaty 4, the negotiations were really about a relationship, and so the Treaty 4 chiefs really wanted to know if they could trust the Treaty Commissioners, if they could trust trust Canada. And so it comes down to... um, what the expectations of treaty were for in, for the Indigenous leadership, and it re- really was about that trust and that relationship. Whereas for Canada, it was about the, the text of treaty and the surrender clause, but it wasn't that um, the, the chiefs uh, didn't understand that. It was that they weren't, uh, that wasn't um, stated to them. So how can they misunderstand uh, something that wasn't um, stated to them in the first place. And so part of the, the subterfuge by Canada was to take advantage of Indigenous peoples and Indigenous communities looking for uh, a, re- a relationship through treaties and kind of use that knowledge, which of course is not a misunderstanding. Canada knew that the chiefs were looking at that, to, to use that strategy um, to um, focus on only the benefits of the treaty, ignore the surrender clause in order to get an agreement. One of the things that's sort of mind-boggling to me, though, is in the process of doing that, and, and if government negotiators and the federal government is is this cognizant of the strategy on the other side, at the same time, there's stuff coming out of Ottawa talking about you know having to protect these people and how they're very simplistic and don't understand certain things. But if they're going to all this trouble to, to trick them, basically, it's, it's really a, a, an implicit acknowledgement of the opposite. And it, it seems to me like the, the messaging is just so, it, it almost makes the whole thing even worse, like the, the messaging of it, that it's so just deliberately dishonest. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I would agree with you. I think the, um, I think this really came, it came out in Treaty 1, like, like I mentioned, uh, they had such um, complicated discussions over land, and it was really emphasized during the, the Treaty 3 negotiations in 1873. Historians hadn't really talked about how um, the Treaty 3 negotiations of 1873, they actually started in 1869. So in 1869 was the first discussions between the Treaty Commissioners and the Anishinaabeg leadership in Treaty 3 territory, which is northern Ontario. And in 1869, they were only able to secure a right-of-way for the military. And they tried again in 1870 to, to negotiate a more comprehensive treaty and failed. 1871 and 1872, they also failed. So they they realized kind of through this process that the Indigenous leadership were not to be taken advantage of, and it would be very difficult to secure um, to secure a treaty that included not from the perspective of the, of the chiefs, not a land surrender, but a treaty that uh, enabled settlement of Euro Canadians is what um, is how Canada presented it. And how much of that too is related to the railroad? 
and needing a railroad line? A lot of it. Um, part of the complicated nature of the number treaties is that people say, um, historians say, and, and people who study the treaties, they say that um, the uh, the indigenous leadership um, requested treaties, they asked for them, and then Canada, out of its benevolence, uh, agreed to negotiate them. But for Treaty 3, because of the area north of Lake Superior, where the nutritional territory of the, of the Anishinaabeg peoples, it was very important to build the railway, uh, Sir Johnny MacDonald's uh, promise. And so it was, the, it was Canada's treaty commissioners who went to the Anishinaabeg leadership to try to negotiate a treaty. Uh, the Anishinaabeg peoples never requested a treaty from Canada. In later number treaties, the Indigenous leadership did request a treaty because they had they had the beginnings of settlement, and they wanted the they wanted the question of settlement. Um, they wanted a treaty relationship to to be centered around that. But for Treaty Three, there was no request, so it was all about the all about the railway and settlement. And, and it's remarkable too, right? Because sort of the narrative for a long time about the railway has been this uniting force, and this is what brings Canada together. But it's at the expense of all these different nations, and and really compromising the integrity, at the very least, of the federal government. Yeah, absolutely. But it, it does kind of show, like, the railway put that additional pressure on Canada's treaty commissioners to, to negotiate the treaty because of that. And then, I don't know, you, you kind of have to... I've been in the documents for quite a few years, and you start to kind of imagine what, what the... You know how it is. You imagine what the time is like. You try to imagine what people are thinking to the best of your ability. And you kind of start to see that um, that additional pressure. Settlers are coming. Settlers are here. They want to start farming, but they can't start farming until the treaty is successfully negotiated. Right, right. So yeah, and yeah, it's it's remarkable too. Like you go out to the prairies, and I had the pleasure, and I and I mean that legitimately, of living in Regina for two years. And yeah, you just go and you drive around, or, or even when you fly, just sort of the way it's all parceled out. And you can visually see it, but of course that had to happen over time, and, and these Absolutely. treaties were necessary in order to allow that to happen. And and sort of everything we conceive of the prairies in 2019 is based off of this. Yeah, it's quite interesting that you say that because for Treaty uh, for Treaty Six, which isn't Regina but just past Regina, more into the um, northern uh, mid central Saskatchewan, and then into Alberta. Um, like I mentioned, Indigenous chiefs had requested a treaty quite a few years prior to the negotiations of Treaty 4, but Canada did not agree to a treaty until um, they had sent a survey party, I think in the early 1870s, and um, it was Chief Sweetgrass's son who questioned, well, what is the survey party doing here? We don't we don't have any treaties negotiated, and they, and they, they took the first course and at the beginning of the survey party they turned it around and they pointed it east and they said go and so it wasn't until uh, these types of instances that uh, Canada agreed to negotiate uh, treaty six hmm. so one of the things too that the book talks about is is some of the strategies that the government negotiators used in order to essentially trick the the nations and uh, you know one of these is you, you, as you mentioned it's not really about the land at all um, but one of these that, that sort of caught my attention that I, I want to talk about is uh, they intentionally would distance chiefs from the physical text by having them touch the pen mm -hmm. to the treaty and then shaking hands with the clerk who would then sign on their behalf, mm -hmm. leading to the impression that the verbal discussion was the formal agreement. Now, I read that, 
And I would say, is that not sort of the definition of like fraud? Yeah, it's interesting. And um, the common explanation that people who've written about trees in the past have used is that um, indigenous peoples are, are non-literate, so it makes sense that they wouldn't sign, that they would just mark the treaty with an X. And and like the whole misunderstandings thing, like on the on the face of it, that sounds reasonable, right? But when you look into it closely and when you study treaties, um, you mentioned the treaties further out east. Um, in the Upper Canada treaties, um, many of the, the written parchment treaties, the, the chiefs would actually sign the treaties with their uh, totem animals. I don't know if you've seen uh, examples of these early manuscripts before. No, I, I haven't, no. Yeah, they're quite interesting. So I kind of looked at that and I said, well, wait a minute. If And, and these, are, um, these are Anishinaabeg chiefs in just further east, the same as the Treaty 3 chiefs, and they they have the same clan system, they have the same um, same uh, totem animals that they would use for their clan system. Why aren't these Treaty 3 chiefs signing like they're, um, like had been done in the previous treaties? And so looking into a little bit more, that, that this strategy actually originated in the United States, that some of the um, treaty commissioners started to do this, and my guess is that, is that, is that the idea filtered further north. And so you had this idea that I mentioned earlier of Canada trying to focus on the relationship, not so much on the treaty text. Um, and part of that process is, is, like you mentioned, this distancing, this um, you don't need to uh, you don't need to sign the document, you don't need to, um, all you need to do is either shake the hand of the commissioner or touch the pen of the clerk. And so to me, that really emphasized this distancing, this idea. And it's it's not the only thing, like like in the book, I say it's part of a strategic plan that the treaty commissioners came up with. And so part of the plan was was this distancing from the treaty text. And, um, and an, another part of the part we mentioned earlier was that they would resolve to only discuss land after the treaties had been co- concluded. So they would conclude the verbal negotiations. They would shake hands. Usually they would take a day break. They would pay. They would read the text, pay annuities, and then it wasn't until the following day that they would then talk about um, reserve allotments. Hmm. So all that was was kind of pushed to the end. But yeah, the touching the pen is interesting. Chief Crowfoot even said uh, later, uh, he's a Treaty Seven chief, and he said um, when when the, this was later after 1877, when when the promises weren't really forthcoming from Canada as he believed. He said, well, the joke's on them. I never signed the document. I only touched the pen. So, and it was Constantine Scullin, the missionary in the area. He said, well, you took the money, and that's good enough for them. They mm. will consider the treaty valid. But, um, but yeah, that is part of Canada's subterfuge. Yeah. So, you know, you, you mentioned Alexander Morris and, and treaty commissioners. What is their intention when they go in? Like, like when they're negotiating with nations, do they have any intention of, meeting the commitments that they're making? Yeah, it's really difficult. Uh, Alexander Morris is an interesting case. Um, he he kind of both garners my respect, but then I'm, I, I feel like he's the most <laughs> awful person ever because he would, he, he kind of, he was, he wasn't the divisor of the strategic plan, but he certainly um, added to it. He was just like, I, like I mentioned, like there's immense pressure on him to um, have successful treaty negotiations because of settlement, because of the railway, because of all these different aspects. 
And so, you know, he's negotiating, and he himself was, uh, he was both um, lieutenant governor and he was a business person as well. And so he had done some William dealings. His, his father had been part of the, part of the Indian, Indian Commission uh, out further east, so he kind of had this idea. And so he would, um, I think when he approached the negotiations, like he he was he was sincere but in um in a very uh patriarchal way because he felt that even though he was being disingenuous that he felt that this was the best for indigenous communities right. at the time that that they accept treaty so and and in a in a way that makes that's the most loathsome part of it is because of this patriarchal attitude that we are very much critical of today and so um, even though he might have started from perhaps a higher spot of negotiations of um, people, when they talk about Alexander Morse, they talk about the honor of the crown, which is very complicated. So he might have started from that, but then he negotiated um, Treaty 3, 4, 5, and 6. And so he has a huge, huge hand in this. And he isn't necessarily worse than any of the treaty commissioners, but I think of a treaty commissioner like Simon James Dawson, who was part of the original negotiations at Treaty 3, and he was someone who um, certainly upheld the, the, the honor of the crown, but he was also a surveyor, and he had a lot more experience in Indigenous communities. Prior to being a treaty commissioner, he was uh, involved in the survey of the, of the Dawson route, of, of the road that uh, eventually became close to where the railway went. And so he worked with indigenous peoples, and when he negotiated treaties, he didn't use the same subterfuge. He was certainly part of the negotiations, but he's the person who, in, who, who took his own account of the Treaty 3 negotiations, and he noted that um, the, um, that the chief's speeches were being written down slightly different than the clerk and the journalists were doing them. And, and so he, coll he collected this account of the Treaty 3 negotiations. And even though he was a treaty commissioner, he never, he never um, shared it with the Indian Department. And he kept it for himself, and it was eventually donated to the um, Provincial Archives, oh. or the National Archives in Ottawa, sorry. And so we get this really interesting um, discrepancy uh, that focuses um, directly on, on the Surrender Clause in Treaty 3, and that's only because uh, of Simon James Dawson, who was also a Treaty Commissioner, a, very, uh, uh, a Treaty Commissioner who I very much respect, uh, unlike Morris. Right. So, so that's interesting, though, that he had that background, because you know, generally, like with someone like Morris, as you say, you, you don't in, expect them to have, I don't know if empathy is the right word, for the community, because you know, the majority of them weren't, really from the area that had spent a lot of time there, right? They're just out there to do the negotiations. Yeah, David Laird is another example. He was Treaty Commissioner initially for Treaty 4, and he's from Prince Edward Island. And so you do have these, and it was a big critique of the Hudson's Bay Company people and the other people who had spent time in the West, that they were um, they had little patience for Easterners who tried to impose their own uh, views of what um, relations with Indigenous people should be like. So is there a change over time with all this, too? I mean, I, I know the, the 
the, the treaties are coming within a seven-year period. But does you know Treaty One then inform Treaty Two and Two inform Three? Like, like is there that progression there where either on the government side or for the nations themselves, are they adjusting per treaty? They're trying to. When you look at the Department of Indian Affairs correspondence, um, they're tr really trying to limit uh, the expense uh, and the benefits of treaties. And so uh, Treaty 1, for example, um, all, all the treaties, all the number of treaties have annuity payments attached to them. So these are payments that last as long as the sunshine, the grass grows, and the rivers flow, and they, they continue today. Uh, it's a it's a bone of contention because um, they uh, are set. Uh, they've never changed. They're set at their original um, fee, which for Treaty 1 was $3 per year per person. But then later with Treaty 3, as I mentioned, the negotiations were were, um, were extended with the Anishinaabeg. So um, Treaty Commissioner Morris um, added to the annuity payments and he made them, uh, he made a, a single payment of $7 for, uh, in 1873 and then an annuity payment uh, in perpetuity of $5. And so this was a lot of money in 1873, of course, because not a lot of money yeah. today. And, and Canada says they continue these payments for, for symbolism, but, um, but there is quite a bit of interest in, in exactly what, what role the annuity payments played. And annuity payments after uh, Treaty 3, then there's all this correspondence saying, well, we should get the annuity payments returned to $3 for Treaty 4 and Treaty 5. And they did for Treaty 5 for most of them. But then Treaty 6 was quite difficult as well, uh, and Treaty 4. And so they, the annuities stayed at um, $5. And other things they tried to limit, like agricultural implements and stuff like that. From, from the Canadian government's perspective. From the Indigenous um, community's perspective, um, the, their communities, um, the last smallpox epidemic was in the late 1860s, and that had an impact. There's also, um, especially Treaty 7 where I am now, there was a lot of negative impact, um, colonial impact, because of the presence of alcohol mm. in the late 1860s. And then... In the 1870s, which is the er era that you're asking about, one of the big impacts on Indigenous communities is um, the disappearance of the bison, the buffalo. And so this is really hitting communities uh, hard, especially the Cree communities and and the, the Nisistapi as well, the, the Blackfoot communities as well. And so that really kind of um, changes treaties into more towards this relationship where the idea is that the indigenous communities are looking to Canada to provide that livelihood, and that's why we get these agricultural clauses in the treaties. And so they start out in Treaty 1 as basically assistance with agriculture, but, but by the time we have the Treaty 6 negotiations, um, the agricultural clause has this huge list of uh, cows and agricultural implements and, um, and plows and all, the, all these different things. And if you look at the original manuscript of Treaty 6, you can see in pen how... It's, there's not much room in the manuscript, but they're adding all these different implements that the, that the chiefs had demanded in Treaty 6. So, so yeah, even, even between 1871 and 1877, there are quite a few changes from, from both sides. But why the, like, if the nations are struggling with these various issues, and certainly the government is not all that sympathetic to their plight, why not just 
and this is going to sound cold, but I mean, the, the way in which the government has approached First Nations forever has been pretty cold. Just, mm -hmm. yeah. just let them, let them sort of basically let them die. I don't like why trick people. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's, there's two different eras kind of going on. So, um, Canada, the treaty commissioners, they were kind of forced, especially for Treaty 6, because I mentioned the surveyor uh, episode. Mm -hmm. So Canada both wanted to, um, they wanted to allow settlement, they wanted to develop the land. Uh, the Silver Rippers Land in 1869 eliminated uh, HBC title, and now Canada wanted to assert its own sovereignty, so they wanted to, they wanted to push in surveyors, they wanted to push in settlers. But the indigenous communities were very strong, and they refused that, right? There's a lot of resistance. There's a lot of agency in 1875 and into 1876, uh, especially chiefs like Big Bear, who would not allow any settle settlers to come into their territory. And the same thing for Treaty 7, where I am now. So because of that, Canada was forced to negotiate Treaty 6 and 7. Part of Treaty 6 and 7, well, not 7, but, but especially part of Treaty 6, is what's known as the Medicine Chest Clause. So the, because the negotiations were so difficult, um, Treaty Commissioner Morris added the Medicine Chest Clause in which uh, it kind of has a dual purpose. It both um, protects Indigenous communities in times of famine, which they were looking at with the disappearance of the buffalo, and it, um, it allows for a payment of monies from the transition to agriculture for uh, Indigenous communities. So they are looking at that livelihood. And... As far as letting them die, Canada did have a treaty obligation, and it's kind of interesting because um, Treaty Commissioner Morris, when he added the Medicine Chest Clause, he was censured by the basically the PMO office of the day, and he was quite angry that this that this censure was on his file, and his his response was that any um, any any modern compassionate government. Um, provides assistance in times of famine. Right. Why does it matter if I write it, write it into the treaty? But of course, um, like I only focus on kind of the area of the, of the treaty negotiations, but what happens after 1877, of course, is that um, Indigenous communities are made to starve. And the best example of this is James Daszak's Clearing the Plains, For where sure. he talks about yeah. how Canada kind of, kind of like had a strategic plan to limit, limit expenses and also not support... Uh, indigenous communities that were starving, even though there is this treaty obligation. Right. So, so it almost boils down to well, greed and self, greed and impatience. Yeah, like, self-interest. Like I think you're yeah. going to say, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, uh, 100%. So, um, and, and you know, obviously, I'm not advocating for that strategy. Um, it, it just it it's sort of it's it's this sort of this conflict that seems to be coming out of Ottawa throughout this whole time with the approach to indigenous peoples. It, there's not I mean, it's it's negative in the approach, but it's sort of different arms of negativity and, and coercion. Um, and it's sort of like the the left hand is sort of punching while the right hand is like stealing, you know, like it seems like, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, to be clear, it, it, part of the inconsistency is because not everyone, you always have your Alexander Morris's and you you always have your Simon James Dawson's. Right, and so in the period of starvation, with the decimation of the bison, you do have um, stories of um, Indian agents and other people who really go out of their way to um, help indigenous communities through this transition, 
And then you get people who are just, they're, they're not good people. They're not helping. In fact, they're harming mm-hmm. Indigenous communities. And like I say, that's, that's not my area. Like the, the post-treaty area is not, my, not the area that I study. I just study the negotiations. Mm-hmm. But you do like um, you do have examples of that, and so it's it is in, inconsistent in the treatment. Yeah, and certainly too in the application. I know there's basically a whole industry here in Ottawa of people who research the implementation of these treaties and whether or not they were the, the obligations were met. And certainly there's yeah. the legal ramifications of that too. Yeah, and that's part of why a lot of the early histories about um, the number of treaties or all treaties in Canada, a lot of them kind of, they they always have, I, I, it's kind of like surrender bias. Um, they're talking about uh, the surrender of lands, even though, like I mentioned, it was never nego- mentioned mention the negotiations. It's only in the text of treaty. So you kind of get these historians, uh, Department of Indian Affairs, I think it was Indian and Northern Affairs Canada at the time, um, had a bunch of publications about the treaties made. And they're kind of, they have all this, I call it bias toward um, the surrender of lands. And so it's really kind of impacted the way Canadians think of and view, like we have the surrender bias. But for the Indigenous communities, like after the negotiated treaties, like you can imagine that um, all of a sudden you have, um, like I guess it's not all of a sudden, there's this kind of this transition to um, settlement. But at some point, um, Canada's saying, well, you, you surrendered your rights. You centered your rights, titles, and privileges through treaties. Mm-hmm. And 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 how how would you, if you're an indigenous person, how, how would how would you how would you feel yeah. about that when you're you're just dumbfounded? You're like, we entered into a relationship with you. This is supposed to be an annual building relationship in which we would look after the land. There would be the stewardship c- component, and we would um, we would be together as as brothers or as cousins. Uh, Harold Johnson talks about um, Cree and settler societies as cousins. So. So yeah, it becomes very, becomes very difficult, um, and you have the the Red River resistance. You have all these different things that really um, negatively impact Indigenous communities. Again, this is the post-treaty period, right. but it is an interesting period. Yeah, and, and two, it, it speaks to you know certainly contemporary issues in this era of reconciliation, and you know you see sometimes people wonder, well, why are so many nations skeptical of the federal government and, and skeptical of of certain claims towards reconciliation well i mean this book is an example of why yeah right? they, they have no reason to be trustful no the skepticism should be the, the the first stance especially based on on what i've seen from treaties but i come like i come from a, a background in history like you but also a background in indigenous studies and indigenous studies we we learn about like the past system we learn about the indian act we learn about um about starvation, about all these different uh, policies that the Department of Indian Affairs has, but not everybody knows about that. And so, in terms of reconciliation and the impact of colonialism, like we we talk about reconciliation now, and it's and it's a learning process. Like people learn about these things, but in terms of um, about indigenous uh, indigenous communities, um, yeah, it's it's very difficult. Um, the impact of colonialism cannot be understated. Yeah, for for sure. So so how then can we use this and use this knowledge that, that you have in this book? You know, how do we use this, say, for for not not in a macro level for the government, but on an individual basis? You know, I, I read this and, and I, I learn about 
how these treaties were negotiated and, and everything that goes into it. How can I then, as a person who you know has gone through the TRC and, and looked at all those recommendations, how can we implement things into our daily lives to help work towards reconciliation? Yeah, well, I think treaties are, are an important part of that. Um, Michael Ash, he has a recent recent book out where he talks about, um, it's called On Being Here to Stay, but it, it really helped me because he was one of the first He's not a historian, he's an anthropologist, but he was one of the first authors to talk about um, to talk about treaties as um, as a rejection of the cultural misunderstandings that in Treaty 4 he argued that both the Indigenous leadership and the Treaty Commissioners understood each other. And he describes Treaty 4 and um, treaties as non-Indigenous people's Magna Carta. Right. So treaties is how, how settler society or we as non-Indigenous peoples how we um, explain our rights to the land. And so right away you think, okay, well, first of all, it's important to understand the treaties. They are complicated, <laughs> yes. but, but you get into it, and, and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission talked about, about treaties as well. And so, and then it, it's, it really gets down to that relationship, like um, uh, forget about the, the text of treaty, forget about that part of it, but look at other documents, look at eyewitness accounts, look at Indigenous oral histories, which are, are quite readily available now, at least translated versions, and then kind of kind of learn about what that treaty relationship is, and then you can kind of, like I'm in post-second education, so I kind of think about how um, if we're in a treaty relationship and say you're a, a program advisor or you do something else in a in a post-secondary institution, then you can kind of apply that relationship to how you, um, basically, how you view your relationship with Indigenous peoples in, in your workplace or at home. Um, when I did my master's degree in Indigenous studies at Trent University, um, my master's thesis supervisor's name is David Newhouse, and he had this ingenious um, assignment for all um, first-year students. It was called the Homelands Assignment. And he would have everyone, Indigenous or non-Indigenous, write an essay about their homeland and about the Indigenous peoples in their homeland. It didn't matter if they were if they were born in downtown Toronto or, or out here in Treaty 7 territory. The idea was that the Indigenous peoples are everywhere in Canada. And I think treaties are kind of the same way. It kind of um, lets non-Indigenous peoples or the settler society, it makes us think about, okay, well, treaties are between nations these treaties were negotiated with indigenous peoples. What do they encompass? How can we view reconciliation through that lens? Yeah, uh, I think that's, yeah, I've heard of that assignment before, and it's just such a great idea and uh, a great step towards things. And, and, of course, the book, central to that, and again, it is No Surrender, The Land Remains Indigenous. Uh, so Sheldon, uh, by Sheldon Krasowski, who's joined us today. I hope I'm saying your name right, by the way. Uh, yeah, no, that's perfect. Oh, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Okay, great. So who's joined us today all the way from Calgary? Sheldon, thanks so much for the time. Uh, thanks for having me. If you have any questions or comments for the show, you can find us at historyslam at gmail.com. I am at Dr. Shawnee Fever on Twitter. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your show. Give us the likes, ratings, all that fun stuff to keep the show going. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me.
Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.